The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. We are lucky in this community for so many reasons, all the great Christmas sweaters, good sense of humor, but also we have some members of this community who have been dedicated to causes and issues and questions that are of the utmost importance in our world and done so for decades and invite their passion and concerns here for us to explore with them and join link arms with them. And we have members of this community who have been dedicated to the Palestine and Israel, the people there, the questions, the fight for shared humanity and peace and human rights for decades. People like Bruce, people like Dolores, people like Jeff Peckrell and others. People who have spent time there, people who have loved ones there, feel accountable to that part of the world in a particularly deep and binding way. And they have been doing programming with us and witnessing since October 7th. This hasn't been an easy issue in many houses of worship, even ones who are Jewish or Muslim. Many communities have divided opinions, which says to me how complicated and how layered the history, the culture, the communities of Gaza and Israel are. And I know from talking to some of you that we each have loyalties, certain ideals we put higher than others, a perspective informed by what we've learned or experienced, which is almost always only partial, but still guides us. Personally, in my personal life, I feel accountable to, well, actually in my professional life, I should say, I feel accountable to Muslim colleagues, one of whom told me at the interfaith Thanksgiving service that she had lost 100 members of her extended family so far in the conflict, and to colleagues who feel the existential threat of what happened in Israel. Personally, to a friend who's Afghanian Muslim whose opinion is layered, and another best friend, half of whose family, like like Bruce's, was wiped out in the Holocaust and whose parents feel a level of terror and despair about what they see in the world that I have never seen in them before. These two unflappable scientists and pragmatists waking in the middle of the night, crying. And I've known them since I was 12. And I don't feel nearly informed enough to speak with authority on the issues in Gaza. So I apologize as your minister for that. Do you think that there are things that we probably all agree on, or most of us, and I'm careful to say that I hope I'm not overstating it, I think we all stand by the need to fight for the recognition of basic human rights and for those to be respected and restored anywhere in the world, for humanitarian aid to flow freely that none should be denied food or water or medical aid, certainly no nation that we fund and support 
should be allowed to do so if we have any control at all, which it's not clear sometimes to me that we do have. I've written, as I'm sure most of you have, to politicians on formal letterhead, arguing for a ceasefire that has now come and gone. I do it, though, as a neighbor I ran into the other day, a Muslim who I got to know, not on my block, actually, though I saw him around, but when I showed up at the school board as a religious leader to argue for the right for Muslim students to have a day off in honor of Ramadan, and he was there with his son. He was despairing at a bench outside our local store, and when I asked him what was going on with him, he said that he called and wrote every day, not because he th thought it did anything, but because he needed to do something. Many of us feel a sense that we should do and must do something, and it's hard to know what. I'm not supportive of Netanyahu or his dangerous, theocratic, anti-democratic leanings, but then I don't think a lot of Israelis, as we saw in the streets, were in favor of it. I do think Israel has a right to exist, and I believe in the Israel that has equal rights and opportunities for Arab Christians and Muslims and Arab Jews who live there too. I find the story of the founding of Israel, what I know of it, to be complicated and troubling. I think about the man, the Muslim man, who came to speak at the church in New Jersey that I served. He was probably in his 70s at the time, and he pulled a chain out from underneath his shirt as part of his speech, and there was a key on it, and he said he'd worn it since he was a child, as so many others did, he said. It was the key to his family's house that they were driven to during the creation of Israel. And he takes that key as a reminder of what happened and the memory of a woman who refused to leave her house who was shot in front of it. It's deeply troubling that we as the United States were part of carving out someone else's land it's something for which we have to do some moral reckoning, even if there are lots of historic ties and claims on that land and rights to be there. And I also feel an incredible moral hypocrisy about getting on any high horse about that history, while a far more hideous, older history of seizing people's land is here for us to reckon with. We need to get our own house in order in terms of reparations in this country and speak with a lot of humility about others who did the same. Double standards are part of language that we need to erase from our political and social language. Be aware of. Of course, none of our moral work also, or our thinking about our work, needs to be either or. It's both and so often. And in that sense, for me, it's about means and ends also. And for me right now, what feels most clear is that particularly as a minister of this community, how we do the work of debating this issue or any hard issue in front of us. And there are so far have been hard issues in front of us at every single turn 
in my seven years here. But how we do the debate and the conversations as painful and fraught as the ones we are facing even right now is as important as what we do. Which is why it has meant a lot to me that those of us who are active, those among us who are most active in the issues around the Middle East have really fought to stay in a compassionate, respectful dialogue here in the community and among us. It's why it mattered to me that Richard Davis Lowell stepped aside with our plan for this Sunday to yield to another conversation out of a shared sense of a larger good we all try to hold. If you knew how much Bruce left on the cutting room floor from his reflection and what he wanted to say today and felt called to say because of a sense of what we could contain in this time, you would know the sacrifices he's willing to make too to be in dialogue and to be in it together. It's meant so much work, good work, to find common ground like Wayne and Rick Pittman did, to talk about things like this service or programs we can lead or ways we can step into the world together, even as some of us go in different ways out into the world too, but here to do as much as we can together. It's meant hard conversations about the language we use in our conversations here at church, not all of which we've ended up on the same page about. Lao Tzu, the sixth century Chinese philosopher, founder of Taoism, once famously wrote, if there is to be peace in the world, there must be peace in the nations. If there is to be peace in the nations, there must be peace in the cities. And if there is to be peace in the cities, there must be peace between neighbors. If there is to be peace between neighbors, there must be peace in the home. If there is to be peace in the home, there must be peace in the heart. In other words, it's not irrelevant how we weather these times, times like these. We won't have actually lived our commitment to our values at any point in our history as a community. We won't have lived in this moment our commitment to peace, for instance, if we were to bring the inhumanity of war, <laughs> the pitting of people against each other into how we are together. So much of how we engage has to be like Wayne's work that we bring into it, the spirit of transformation that we hope then to see in the world like a virus that replicates. Rumi, who's the 13th century Sufi mystic poet, once wrote out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field, I will meet you there. To me, that quote doesn't mean that doing right and doing wrong don't matter. It just means that there is something else we always have to keep in sight. 
when we do the work of sorting out the world, this place where ultimately we're all going to have to meet to rebuild the world. So how to live the hardest moments with that place as our true north that we're aiming at. Because at the end, it's not just going to be the Jews and the Gazan Palestinians kneeling in the rubble to put their part of the world back together. It's going to be all of us. And it's going to be here. A few weeks ago, the Interfaith Council of San Francisco, whose board of trustees I chair, for this year, did some amazing hard work bringing Jewish, a Jewish leader and a Muslim leader, both of whom have this incredible support of the larger landscape of their religious peers, bring them to the table to talk about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. We have, could not have gotten them to the table to talk about anything else. And there were lots of times when I think it looked like we weren't going to be able to get everybody to the table. If you watch the briefing, and I put the um, sort of help to find the link in, your, in that insert in the order of service, if you watch it, you can see the tension between them, right? There's so much anger and hurt that everybody is bringing to that moment, understandably. But on this one thing, they could agree that there was a rise in hate crime in our nation, around the world. There was a rise in fear and in what that fear was being allowed to give dangerous permission to in our culture. And it worried them both enough to sit across the table virtually from each other. Swastikas painted on windows on Market Street Warnings like the one I received from the U.S. government that said there were threats to houses of worship in the Bay Area, especially Jewish ones. Three young Muslim women in hijab were subjected to a barrage of ugly language from two white men outside the Tenderloin Rec Center recently, witnessed by Bill Fricker, the head of Up on Top. He went up to them immediately, he asked how they were, and they shrugged. Happens all the time. The head of the Islamic schools in San Francisco had more children transfer to the school this year because of bullying in the public schools, some of it by teachers, some of it reported with no repercussions from the administration. Pe people who are teaching in the schools that Islam is dangerous, that Muslims are terrorists. One child's nose broken. It begins, they said in the briefing, it begins with permissiveness. It begins with language, actually. The Design Museum in Dogpatch, I went to it yesterday, Rohit and I did, not knowing what was there, just to have an excuse to get out of the rain and into the world. It was this incredible Design for Peace exhibit. You have to go see it. It's small and it's lovely really healing to lean into this like creative work of imagining all these people imagining and designing things that are about a better world, a more peaceful world. And one effort was started by the work of an Iraqi journalist who, seeing how hate crime, hate, hate language, led to hate action. And so what would it mean to create a lexicon of hate language and then offer alternative language in various places to describe the same concerns, but ones that wasn't inflammatory? 
So what were the thoughtful substitutions that de-escalated? There hasn't been one made for the US yet. It hasn't been funded. We need to find out what it would cost. But online, you can see ones from various countries. And I know, as Bruce mentioned, there's a concern right now that charges, for instance, of anti-Semitism are being used to shut down legitimate criticism and conversation. And in a podcast with Richard Dawkins that I listened to yesterday, he had a similar warning about Islamophobia, about it being launched at many, including him, who he says rightly criticize oppressive, religiously-based norms in many nations, and the right to do that, to have a legitimate criticism that is not Islamophobic, but rightfully fearful. And both of those concerns are valid and have a place, right, to not use them inappropriately because that robs them of the power to name Islamophobia and anti-Semitism when they are really at work in the world and they are really at work in the world and they need to be called out. Inflammatory language inflames. Prejudicial language perpetuates prejudice and what prejudice gives permission for. And there's so much more I could say about this. It's my cutting room floor, I guess. I think that Bruce was right in his line that I love most in his reflection about Islamophobia and anti-Semitism and racism and hate and all the othering that's at the root of human evils in the world and to really call them out and pay attention to it, to parse in detail how it shows up, the way we have been looking at what it means when anti-blackness shows up and what it feeds, right, which is racism and inequity, but paying attention to the subtle, not so subtle, once you see them, ways it shows up. And to do that again and again, and also around Muslims and also for Jews, conspiracy theories about Jews being in control. Actually, it was your father, right, who had this great joke that he passed along. I didn't put it in the service, but it was about how he, this person from one of the concentration camps, about how he preferred to read the Nazi papers because in the Nazi papers, the Jews were in control of everything and powerful. But in the world he lived in, I wasn't what it looked like. It's a great passage. I hope it's in your book. And one-liners about Jews and money, like the one, just one example that uh, Bruce gave from his childhood, and implications that Muslim men are criminals or violent, or Muslim women are passive and not agents of their own destiny, even as we name things that are wrong in the world, that we don't perpetuate that. Any language that compares people to animals or makes them subhuman? Criticism of the choice to wear hijab or kippah? poking fun of either, scapegoating in any way, shape, or form, double standards, all of it. There's so much thoughtful reflection on what anti-Semitism and what Islamophobia look like in the just subtle language and tropes that get reinforced, let alone inflammatory language that is more obvious that strikes the match that we cannot control the run of. There's so much that we can't do, but there's a lot we can figure out how to hold heartbreak and hope together with love, 
how to have hard conversations where we speak commandingly together and then out in the world commandingly and clearly and with care, live the heart of peace we seek to see replicated in the world, seek and find our common ground the way Rick and Wayne did because the world moves so much faster when we're able to do that to the places we wanna to get to and prepare ourselves because ultimately, ultimately, all of us always, after each hard chapter of life and in the world and all the heartbreak and all the loss, we all have to kneel in the dust and the rubble, side by side, in our communities, in the world, after the wars are over, and try and get it right one more time. So how do we stay ready for that? May peace prevail, may mercy shine upon us. May we see right and do right and be good and be kind. May peace and love prevail. Good morning, everyone. I remember as a child being asked to bring nickels to religious school to plant trees in Israel. The school was at a synagogue in Long Beach called, coincidentally, Temple Israel. The trees, we were told, were to beautify a land, an empty land that had recently been settled by Jewish refugees from Europe. This was easy for me to understand. My parents and most of my relatives and family friends were German refugees forced to leave their homeland. My mother told me stories about her village, how the Nazis made their lives miserable and dangerous. But she'd also said things to me like, our neighbors were never mean to us. And she had stories of how the town's mayor after 1933 acted to protect her widowed mother and their family. My father grew up in Munich where most of his friends were not Jews. Then one day in 1933, he went to the sports club he belonged to and a new sign on the door said, Jews not allowed. He could no longer associate with non-Jewish athletes who'd been his longtime friends. Both my parents were able to emigrate before things became very dangerous, not so for many others in their families. In the late 1950s, my father became an active fundraiser for the United Jewish Appeal. I'd hear him on the phone explaining why Jews had to support Israel. It made sense to me. Jewishness. There was religion, but as a young teen, science seemed much more interesting. And then there was, in middle school, a game where kids threw pennies on the ground. If you picked one up, you were a Jew. I never picked up a penny. Even the one that was thrown at me in the cafeteria line one day by guys I thought were my friends, until I turned and one of them scowled, dirty Jew. So there was Israel, refugees, and prejudice. I avoided discussing religion, ashamed more than angry, and I kept all of this largely to myself. Then came the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement of the 1960s. My understanding of the world changed dramatically. It was from black people that I and millions of others learned that it was right to rebel against discrimination and racism. 
My naive view of the United States as a land of freedom and justice was shattered by fire hoses and attack dogs directed at protesters and assassinations of civil rights workers and leaders, and by Agent Orange and the napalming of Vietnamese villages. Around that time, my view of Israel also began to change. Israel, I discovered, was not a land without a people, for a people without a land, but a land whose native population had been violently driven from their homes. And those trees that my nickels helped pay for, they were planted in places where Palestinian villages had been destroyed. What I saw happening to the Palestinians did not square with a conviction that we Jews who'd suffered so much from discrimination should be the first to oppose discrimination against others. We began to realize that the admonition never again was being perverted to justify oppressing others. So we had to take that slogan and add, never again to anyone. How could it be that we Jews so horribly mistreated were now acting as the oppressors of another people who had absolutely nothing to do with the injustices in Europe? To understand how that happened required learning how European colonialism has shaped, or better said, misshaped the world over the past several centuries, and how that imperialist system has pitted tribe against tribe, people against people, nation against nation. All this is vitally important to understand about our world, but this is far too big a topic to unfold in one reflection or one service. Zionism and its ties to all of this is also important to understand that Zionism emerged from the soil of a racially oppressive Europe and the United States and bears the birthmarks of their racial chauvinism has been the subject of considerable investigation and writing. For those who want to explore this topic, there's a list of books I've found helpful. It's in the special page in your order of service. That many Jews after the Holocaust felt a desperate need for safety and looked for it in Israel, that too is crucial to understand. And why was that so? In large part because the Europeans, especially the Germans, murdered millions of Jews, while countries like England and the United States shut their doors to them in their hour of greatest desperation. I can say this with great certainty because this is exactly what happened to my own family. I spent the last few years writing about the Nazi Holocaust, how it destroyed much of my family, about how my grandfather, seeing a genocide approaching in 1941, carried out acts of resistance to it. In writing about the cruel deaths of members of my family, I was overcome and frequently cried. Today, I cry for the Palestinians. But more than that, as we grieve for Palestinians, as we rage at the injustices that they have suffered and continue to endure, we need to be aware that we may well be approaching a crossroads for humanity. The very power of the events of these last months and the movement that has arisen speaks to that. Two potential futures that confront us. 
one with the kind of death and destruction we see in Gaza becoming even more widespread, and another more liberatory future. I sense a positive potential on the faces and in the voices of the millions, especially of the youth, who are beginning to awaken to fight against injustice, that this determination could develop and become a movement for sweeping social change is a frightening specter for the guardians of the status quo, some of whom are using the charge of anti-Semitism to discredit this awakening movement. What I am seeing in the evolving movement for Palestinian solidarity is Jewish, Palestinian, and other youth standing together in growing recognition that anti-Semitism and Israeli apartheid and all forms of racism and discrimination stem from the same systemic or source. And it is crucially important to understand that source so that we can all move towards a world without such oppression and divisions. I believe passionately that we have to keep our eyes, our minds, and our hearts open, stay alert to new ideas and new possibilities, including revolutionary ones, and not be afraid to discard old prejudices and thoughts about that's just the way the world is, because the world is changing, and it needs to. All of us can choose how or whether we answer this universal call to never again for anyone. I know I must. Thank you very much. Thank you.